0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's story, Bedford County's Three Treasures. Yes, three treasures, located fairly close to one another, are the subject of today's story, two of which are said to be buried in Bedford County, Virginia, which is located in the eastern shadows of the Blue Ridge Mountains. The third treasure, located above ground, is real. And stands on 50 acres above the rural town of Bedford where tens of thousands of people come to see it every year. It is a national treasure and every American should take the time to see it. We'll save that story for last. As for the first two treasures, one is called the Zebulon Miller treasure and everyone knows where it is but can't get to it. The other, which is called the Beale treasure, is very well known and has been widely covered by the media and is likely a hoax ...but remains an unsolved mystery wrapped within three ciphers, only one of which has been solved, and many have searched for it over the past one hundred years. The Beale treasure story is a whopper of a treasure story, and, as with many treasure stories, some say this story is just that, a whopper of a false tale, but some say it's true. The value of the Beale treasure, consisting of gold, silver, and jewels is estimated to be around $43 million, if indeed it does exist. And all you have to do is solve two of three cipher texts that would lead you to buried treasure in Bedford County, Virginia, near the rural town of Montvale. Sounds easy, but it's not. The first text to be ciphered describes the location. The second text gives an exact account of the treasure itself. And the third text lists the names of the treasure owners and their next of kin. The second text describing what the treasure consists of, has been solved. Cipher texts one and three remain unsolved. As for the Zebulon Miller treasure, well, they say you can't take it with you, but apparently he did, and we'll have more on that right after the Beale treasure story. As far as the Beale treasure story goes, legend has it that the man who solved the second of the three ciphers got the gold fever, which apparently compelled him to neglect family, friends, and and all legitimate pursuits for what proved an illusion, as one early author put it. Thousands of people have searched. Lots of private and public property has been dug up by gold seekers who invested time and money trying to find the treasure. A lot of things about the Beale treasure story seem fishy, and we'll cover all that after we share the legend. The story may well be a hoax, but it's a great tale, if nothing else. Here's the legend. In 1885, a man in Lynchburg, Virginia, began selling the Beale Papers for 50 cents each, which contained the story of how the treasure was found and the codes which purported to give the location of, description of, and the names of the treasure owners and next of kin. The cover reads this way. The Beale Papers, containing authentic statements regarding the treasure buried in 1819 and 1821 near Buford's in Bedford County, Virginia and which has never been recovered. Price, 50 cents. Lynchburg, Virginia, book and job print, 1885. Inside the thin blue folder, it tells a story of how the treasure was found. I'll preface this by saying the letter is addressed to a hotel owner in Lynchburg named Morris, and it's signed T.J.B., Thomas J. Beale. Lynchburg, January fourth, eighteen 1822. My dear friend Morris you will doubtless be surprised when you discover from a perusal of this letter the importance of the trust confided to you and the confidence reposed in your honor by parties whom you have never seen and whose names even you have never heard the reasons are simple and easily told it was imperative upon us that some one here should be selected to carry out our wishes in case of accident to ourselves and your reputation as a man of sternest integrity unblemished honor and business capacity, influenced them to select you in place of others better known, but perhaps not so reliable as yourself. It was with this design that I first visited your house two years since that I might judge by personal observation if your reputation was merited. To enable me better to do so, I remained with you more than three months, and until I was fully satisfied as to your character. This visit was made by the request of my associates, and you can judge from their action whether my report was a favorable one. I will now give you some idea of the enterprise in which we are engaged, and the duties which will be required of you in connection therewith. First assuring you, however, that your compensation for the trouble will be ample, as you have been unanimously made one of our association, and as such are entitled to share equally with the others. Some five years since, I, in connection with several friends who, like myself, were fond of adventure, and if mixed with a little danger, all the more acceptable, determined to visit the great western plains and enjoy ourselves in hunting buffalo, grizzly bears, and such other games the country would afford. This, at that time, was our sole object, and we at once proceeded to put it in execution. On account of Indians and other dangers incident to such an undertaking, we determined to raise a party of not less than thirty individuals of good character and standing, who would be pleasant companions, and financially able to encounter the expense. With this object in view, each one of us suggested the matter to his several friends and acquaintances, and in a few weeks the requisite number had signed the conditions, and were admitted as members of the party. Some few refused to join with us, being, doubtless, deterred by the dangers, but such men we did not want, and were glad of their refusal. The company being formed, we forthwith commenced our preparations, and, early in April, 1817, left Old Virginia for St. Louis, Missouri, where we expected to purchase the necessary outfits, procure a guide and two or three servants, and obtain such information and advice as might be beneficial hereafter. All was done as intended, and we left St. Louis the 19th of May, to be absent two years, our objective point being Santa Fe, which we intended to reach in the ensuing fall, and there establish ourselves in winter quarters." After leaving St. Louis, we were advised by our guide to form a regular military organization, with a captain, to be selected by the members, to whom should be given sole authority to manage our affairs, and, in cases of necessity, ensure united action. This was agreed to, and each member of the party bound himself by a solemn obligation to obey at all times the orders of their captain, or, in the event of refusal, to leave the company at once." This arrangement was to remain in force for two years, or for the period of our expected absence. Tyranny, partiality, incompetency, or other improper conduct on the part of the captain was to be punished by deposing him from his office, if a majority of the company desired his dismissal. All this being arranged, and a set of laws framed by which the conduct of the members was to be regulated, the election was held, and resulted in choosing me as their leader. It is not my purpose now to give you details of our wanderings, or of the pleasures or dangers we encountered. All this I will reserve until we meet again, when it will be a pleasure to recall incidents that will always be fresh in my memory. About the first of December, we reached our destination, Santa Fe, and prepared for a long and welcome rest from the fatigues of our journey. Nothing of interest occurred during the winter, and of this little Mexican town we soon became heartily tired. We longed for the advent of weather which would enable us to resume our wanderings and our exhilarating pursuits. Early in March some of the party, to vary the monotony of their lives, determined upon a short excursion for the purpose of hunting and examining the country around us. They expected to be only a few days absent, but days passed into weeks, and weeks into a month or more before we had any tidings of the party. We had become exceedingly uneasy and were preparing to send out scouts to trace them, if possible, when two of the party arrived and gave an explanation of their absence. It appears that when they left Santa Fe, they pursued a northerly course for some days, being successful in finding an abundance of game, which they secured, and were on the eve of returning when they discovered on their left an immense herd of buffaloes heading for a valley just perceptible in the distance. They determined to follow them and secure as many as possible. Keeping well together, They followed their trail for two weeks or more, securing many and stampeding the rest. One day, while following them, the party encamped in a small ravine, some 250 or 300 miles to the north of Santa Fe, and with their horses tethered, were preparing their evening meal, when one of the men discovered in a cleft of the rocks something that had the appearance of gold. Upon showing it to the others, it was pronounced to be gold, and much excitement was the natural consequence. Messengers were at once dispatched to inform me of the facts, and request my presence with the rest of the party, and with supplies, for an indefinite time. All the pleasures and temptations which had lured them to the plains were now forgotten, and visions of boundless wealth and future grandeur were the only ideas entertained. Upon reaching the locality, I found all as it had been represented, and the excitement intense, Everyone was diligently at work with such tools and appliances as they had improvised, and quite a little pile had already accumulated. Though all were at work, there was nothing like order or method in their plans, and my first efforts were to systematize our operations, and reduce everything to order. With this object, an agreement was entered into to work in common as joint partners, the accumulations of each one to be placed in a common receptacle, and each to be entitled to an equal share. "'whenever he chose to withdraw it. "'The whole to remain under my charge "'until some other disposition of it was agreed upon. "'Under this arrangement the work progressed favorable "'for eighteen months or more, "'and a great deal of gold had been accumulated in my hands "'as well as silver, which had likewise been found. "'Everything necessary for our purposes "'and for the prosecution of the work "'had been obtained from Santa Fe, "'and no trouble was experienced in procuring assistance "'from the Indians in our labors.' "'Matters went on thus until the summer of 1819, "'when the question of transferring our wealth "'to some secure place was frequently discussed. "'It was not considered advisable "'to retain so large an amount "'in so wild and dangerous a locality, "'where its very possession might endanger our lives, "'and to conceal it here would avail nothing, "'as we might at any time be forced "'to reveal its place of concealment. "'We were in a dilemma. "'Some advised one plan, some another.' One recommended Santa Fe as the safest place to deposit it, while others objected, and advocated its shipment at once to the States, where it was ultimately bound to go, and where alone it would be safe. The idea seemed to prevail, and it was doubtless correct that when outside parties ascertained, as they would do, that we kept nothing on hand to tempt their cupidity, our lives would be more secure than at present. It was finally decided that it should be sent to Virginia under my charge, and securely buried in a cave near Buford's Tavern, in the county of Bedford, which all of us had visited, and which was considered a perfectly safe depository. This was acceptable to all, and I at once made preparations for my departure. The whole party were to accompany me for the first five hundred miles, when all but ten would return, these latter to remain with me to the end of the journey. All was carried out as arranged, and I arrived safely with my charge." "'Stopping at Buford's, where we remained for a month, under pretense of hunting, etc., "'we visited the cave and found it unfit for our purpose. "'It was too frequently visited by the neighboring farmers, "'who used it as a receptacle for their sweet potatoes and other vegetables. "'We soon selected a better place, and to this the treasure was safely transferred. "'Before leaving my companions on the plains, "'it was suggested that, in case of an accident to ourselves, "'the treasure so concealed would be lost to their relatives,' without some provision against such a contingency. I was, therefore, instructed to select some perfectly reliable person, if such a one could be found, who should, in the event of his proving acceptable to the party, be confided in to carry out their wishes in regard to their respective shares, and upon my return report whether I had found such a person. It was in accordance with these instructions that I visited you, made your acquaintance, was satisfied that you would suit us, and so reported. ON MY RETURN I FOUND THE WORK STILL PROGRESSING FAVORABLY, AND, BY MAKING LARGE ACCESSIONS TO OUR FORCE OF LABORERS, I WAS READY TO RETURN LAST FALL WITH AN INCREASED SUPPLY OF METAL, WHICH CAME THROUGH SAFELY, AND WAS DEPOSITED WITH THE OTHER. IT WAS AT THIS TIME I HANDED YOU THE BOX, NOT DISCLOSING THE NATURE OF ITS CONTENTS, BUT ASKING YOU TO KEEP IT SAFELY TILL CALLED FOR. I INTEND WRITING YOU, HOWEVER, FROM ST. LOUIS, AND IMPRESS UPON YOU ITS IMPORTANCE STILL MORE FORCIBLY. The papers enclosed herewith will be unintelligible without the key, which will reach you in time, and will be found merely to state the contents of our depository, with its exact location, and a list of the names of our party, with their places of residence, etc. I thought at first to give you their names in this letter, but reflecting that someone may read the letter, and thus be enabled to impose upon you by personating some member of the party, have decided the present plan is best— You will be aware from what I have written that we are engaged in a perilous enterprise, one which promises glorious results if successful, but dangers intervene, and of the end no one can tell. We can only hope for the best and persevere until our work is accomplished and the sum secured for which we are striving." As ten years must elapse before you will see this letter, you may well conclude by that time that the worst has happened and that none of us are to be numbered with the living. In such an event, you will please visit the place of deposit and secure its contents, which you will divide into thirty-one equal parts. One of these parts you are to retain as your own, freely given to you for your services. The other share is to be distributed to the parties named in the accompanying paper. These legacies, so unexpectedly received, will at least serve to recall names that may still be cherished, though partially forgotten. In conclusion, my dear friend, I beg that you will not allow any false or idle punctilio to prevent your receiving and appropriating the portion assigned to yourself. It is a gift not from myself alone, but from each and every member of our party, and will not be out of proportion to the services required of you. I trust, my dear Mr. Morris, that we may meet many times in the future, but if the fates forbid, with my last communication, I would assure you of the entire respect and confidence of your friend T. G. B. Lynchburg, Virginia, January 5th 1822. Well, that was the start of it all. I can imagine all the red flags that popped up in your minds after hearing that story. Why didn't all thirty men attend to the burial of the treasure? Why didn't they insist upon dividing their shares once they reached St. Louis, and then each go his own way? They had money, and they had means. And then, Beale never returns for the box? And we're left to assume that Beale wrote the ciphers, two of which were never solved— "'And what of all the other men involved? "'Not one of them was privy to the location "'where the treasure was buried? And yet, "'And yet nine men accompanied him there. "'Twice? "'And no one came back to get it.' "'Bill would repeat that trip once more "'before returning west for good in 1821. "'Prior to his final journey, "'he lodged at the Washington Hotel in Lynchburg, Virginia, "'and befriended the hotel's owner, Robert Morris, "'as the letter states.' As the story goes, before leaving, Beale handed Morris an iron lockbox and advised him to open the box if he failed to return. Morris didn't know it, but that box contained the three ciphers. In a letter from St. Louis a few months later, Beale promised Morris that a friend in St. Louis would mail the key to the cryptograms. However, it never arrived. It was not until 1845 that Morris opened the box. Inside, he found two plain text letters from Beale and several pages of cipher text separated into papers 1, 2, and 3. Morris had no luck in solving the ciphers, and decades later left the box and its contents to an unnamed friend. The friend, then using an edition of the United States Declaration of Independence as the key for a modified book cipher, successfully deciphered the second ciphertext, which gave a description of the buried treasure. Unable to solve the other two ciphertexts, the friend ultimately made the letters and ciphertexts public in a pamphlet entitled The Beale Papers, which was published by yet another friend, James B. Ward, in 1885. Ward was not the friend. Ward himself is almost untraceable in local records, except that a man with that name owned the home in which a Sarah Morris, identified as the spouse of Robert Morris, died at age 77 in 1863. Morris would spend nearly two decades attempting to unravel the codes. In 1862, a year before his death, he handed the materials to an anonymous acquaintance who lucked into the Declaration of Independence as a key to the second cipher. In 1885, that unknown man enlisted the help of James B. Ward, as we know, to publish a pamphlet telling Beale's story. In 1885, the Beale Papers was published as a thin blue booklet. The price, as stated previously, was 50 cents. We don't know how many he sold, but that very likely was the only treasure gained from the whole story, which was most likely created entirely for that purpose. It's kind of telling that the anonymous acquaintance of Morris solved the second cipher, without which the story wouldn't have legs. We'll return with the rest of the story right after these sponsor messages.
1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: And now back to Bedford County's three treasures. Here's the description of the Beale treasure itself, which was included in the Beale papers. I have deposited in the county of Bedford, about four miles from Buford's, in an excavation or vault six feet below the surface of the ground, the following articles, belonging jointly to the parties whose names are given in number three, herewith. The first deposit consisted of 1014 pounds of gold and 3,812 pounds of silver, deposited November 1819. The second was made December 1821 and consisted of 1,907 pounds of gold and 1,288 of silver, also jewels, obtained in St. Louis in exchange to save transportation, and valued at $13,000. The above is securely packed in iron pots with iron covers. The vault is roughly lined with stone, and the vessels rest on solid stone and are covered with others. Paper number 1 describes the exact locality of the vault, so that no difficulty will be had in finding it. As thus described, The treasure's total weight is about three tons, as described in Inventory of the Second Cryptogram. This includes approximately 35,000 troy ounces of gold, 61,200 troy ounces of silver, the gold being worth about 42 million U.S. today, and the silver worth around a million, and jewels worth around $220,000 today. I found a very old article written by Ruth Daniloff for the Smithsonian titled, Thar's Gold in Them Nar Hills, which you might find interesting, especially since it provides us with a look at who Thomas J. Beale was, which is refreshing, as many of the modern researchers can't even agree on his existence, not to mention provide any facts on him. Here's her article. Colonel J.J. Holland Plunged His Post Holder Colonel J. J. Holland Plunged His Post hole Digger into the mound where his metal detector registered 10 and brought up a scoop of dusty earth containing several lumps of coal. At 70, He had been warned by his doctor against digging because of a serious heart ailment, but his obsession with the treasure he believes lies six feet under the dirt beside the railroad track somewhere in Virginia overrides all common sense. Since 1964, when he first learned of Thomas Jefferson Beale, the 2,921 pounds of gold, the 5,100 pounds of silver, and some $200,000 worth of jewels, he clocked up more than 150,000 miles Driving to the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains near Roanoke, Virginia, to dig. At home in Lillian, Alabama, he works most nights from ten to two on the ciphers relating to the treasure. This time he is convinced he has broken the first of the three codes. What I need now is a backhoe, he says with obvious frustration. Then we can dig down and find the gold and solve this Beale thing once and for all. For more than one hundred years, people like Colonel F. Holland, have been trying to find the Beal Millions, once and for all. It is one of the largest and most costly treasure hunts in U.S. history, baffling the finest mathematical minds in the country and defeating their computers. Like the search for the lost Dutchman mine in Arizona, or the stories of the $5 million in Confederate treasury gold buried along the James River just before the Union soldiers entered Richmond in 1865, or wealthy plantation owners' fortunes hidden from the Union soldiers' and never recovered, the Beale treasure tantalizes its seekers with fantasies of untold riches, while inducing frustration, despair, and even bankruptcy. Numerous articles in magazines and trade journals and several books have explored the Beale mystery. Thomas Jefferson Beale, the man responsible for trying 20th century brains and technology, was a devious Virginia gentleman believed to have been born around 1792, That was the year George Washington was elected president for the second time. Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton were feuding over policies which would culminate in a two-party political system. And General Anthony Wayne was commissioned as commander of the American Army to fight Indians who were making pioneer existence tough in the Northwest Territory. The peaks of Otter in the Blue Ridge Mountains may be a clue to where Beale buried gold, silver, and jewels 160 years ago. Treasures unearthed so far include an old car and a chunk of pig iron. Beale came from a distinguished family. In 1668, King Charles II of England recommended one of his ancestors for appointment as commander of Point Comfort at the entrance of Norfolk Harbour. Though one contemporary described Beale as a gentleman well-educated, evidently of good family, and with popular manners, recent research reveals him to have been a no-good, Gun-slinging genius who was constantly bailed out of scrapes by his more respectable brothers. Still, women loved him. He was a broad-shouldered six-footer with swarthy complexion and jet-black hair, worn slightly longer than was fashionable. He was said to be a model of manly beauty, favored by ladies and envied by men. Indeed, the Beale treasure hunt may have started with trouble over the opposite sex. There are several stories, some documented, some not. One story holds that in the spring of 1817, Beale got into a pistol fight with a Fincastle, Virginia neighbor over a woman. Believing he had killed the man, Beale headed for the frontier to escape prosecution. Beale's version of the story was that he and other individuals of good character left seeking adventure and departed on a two-year expedition for buffalo and grizzlies. Whichever is true, a year later, Beale and his hunting cronies, preparing supper in a small ravine some 200 miles north of Santa Fe, discovered strange stuff in the rocks. Upon showing it to others, Beale wrote, it was pronounced to be gold, and much excitement was the natural consequence. Two months later, Morris received a mysterious letter from Beale, posted from St. Louis, which was then a small hunting and trading post on the western frontier. That was the last Morris ever heard from Beale in 1845, 25 years after receiving it, Morris opened the box. I had the lock broken, he later testified, and with the exception of two letters addressed by myself and some old receipts addressed to myself, found only some unintelligible papers covered with figures. Of course, course those unintelligible figures turned out to be the three ciphers. As we know, Morris handed the box and its contents over to James Ward, who was a trusted family friend and Ward struggled with it until his determination and his fortune ran out. In the Beale Papers, Ward would write, A warning to future treasure hunters. Do it only in time as can be spared from legitimate business to the task, and if you can spare no time, let the matter drop. Sound advice, but not the kind taken by cipher addicts, or those like Will Legrand, the hero of Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Gold Bug. Those characters believe that every problem has a solution, And millionaires happen overnight. Getting back to our story, an early researcher, Carl Hammer of Sperry-Univac, used supercomputers of the late 1960s to analyze the ciphers and found that while the ciphers were poorly encoded, the two undeciphered ones did not show the patterns one would expect of randomly chosen numbers and probably encoded an intelligible text. Other questions remain about the authenticity of the pamphlet's account. In the words of one researcher, to me, the pamphlet story has all the earmarks of a fake. There was no evidence save the word of the unknown author of the pamphlet that he ever had the papers. Regarding the existence of Thomas J. Beale, here is what we do know. A survey of U.S. Census records in 1810 shows two Persians named Thomas Beale in Connecticut and New Hampshire. However, the population schedules from the 1810 U.S. Census are completely missing for seven states, one territory, the District of Columbia, and 18 of the counties of Virginia. The 1820 U.S. Census has two persons named Thomas Beale, Captain Thomas Beale of the Battle of New Orleans, 1815, in Louisiana, originally from Virginia's Botetourt County, Fincastle area, 12 miles from Bedford County, and one in Tennessee, and a Thomas K. Beale in Virginia. But the population schedules are completely missing for three states and one territory. Before 1850, the U.S. Census recorded the names of only the heads of households. Others in the household only appeared as numbers, one, two, three, etc. Beale, if he existed, may have been living in someone else's household. In addition, a man named Thomas Beale appears in the customer lists of the St. Louis Post Department in 1820. According to the pamphlet, Beale sent a letter from St. Louis in 1822. Additionally, a Cheyenne legend exists about gold and silver being taken from the west and buried in the mountains in the east, dating from roughly 1820. Despite the Beale paper's unproven veracity, treasure hunters have not been deterred from trying to find that vault. The information that there is buried treasure in Bedford County has stimulated many expeditions with shovels and other implements of discovery, Looking for likely spots. For more than a hundred years, people have been arrested for trespassing and unauthorized digging, some of them in groups, as in the case of people from Pennsylvania in the 1990s. Several digs were completed at the top of Porter's Mountain, one in the late 1980s with the landowner's permission, as long as any treasure found was split 50 50. However, the treasure hunters found only Civil War artifacts as the value of these artifacts paid for time and equipment rental, that expedition broke even. The Beale Cypher story has been a subject of multiple television documentaries, such as the UK's Mystery series, a segment in the seventh special of Unsolved Mysteries, and the 2011 Declaration of Independence episode of the History Channel TV show Brad Meltzer's Decoded. There are also several books and considerable Internet activity. In 2014... The National Geographic TV show, The Numbers Game, referred to the Beale Ciphers as one of the strongest passwords ever created. In 2015, the UK TV series Myth Hunters, also known as Raiders of the Lost Past, devoted one of its Season 3 episodes to the topic. And in 2015, the Josh Gates series Expedition Unknown visited Bedford to investigate the Beale Ciphers and search for the treasure. Now, as for the Zebulon Miller treasure, here is the story on that. Zebulon Miller, of Lynchburg, Virginia, was the brother of rich businessman Samuel Miller, who is said to have been responsible for Zeb's three million dollar fortune. Tobacconist, merchant, and railroad investor Samuel Miller rose from poverty to become one of the wealthiest men in the antebellum South. A recluse, he resided in his eighteen twenty six frame house on the outskirts of Lynchburg and quietly amassed his fortune. During the Battle of Lynchburg, in June of 1864, a cavalry skirmish took place in front of his home, and Union troops pillaged the house. Upon entering, they encountered an elderly, bedridden, but defiant Samuel Miller, who had successfully hidden his important financial papers. Considered a miser during his lifetime, but a generous philanthropist after death, Miller bequeathed both funds and land to the city of Lynchburg. His educational endowments today help support the University of Virginia and two institutions that bear his name, the Miller School of Albemarle and the Miller Home for Girls of Lynchburg. The Miller School of Albemarle, originally known as the Miller Manual Labor School in 1874, was intended to provide a first-rate education for children from Albemarle County and the surrounding area, regardless of financial condition. Sam died in 1869, 16 years before Zeb, who, as the story goes, had those years to enjoy his inherited riches. Five years before he died in 1885, Zebulon Miller of Lynchburg is said to have set some things in motion. He built a concrete mausoleum with three-foot-thick walls, then hired a Swiss agent to make sure that his fortune, estimated to be 2.3 million in gold and silver coins, would be safely installed, along with his dead body, and the tomb is said to have been undisturbed to this day. Skeptics, however say this is nothing more than a tall tale. There are no reports of anyone going into Miller's tomb. The tomb is real, but what lies within, no one really knows. The mausoleum is located in Old City Cemetery. Zebulon Miller also set up a $1 million trust to ensure the upkeep of the mausoleum with armed guards for his tomb. After a high-tech security system was installed, the guards were dismissed and the treasure is said to remain intact to this day. The image in one of the articles I looked up shows that the ADT is currently monitoring his tomb. As for the third treasure, it is an inspiring memorial to the men we lost during the D-Day invasion of France in June of 1944, and this is a priceless treasure which can be found and cherished and brought back home forever in memories. Bedford was chosen for the fact that this small rural community lost the most young men per capita at D-Day than any other city or town in the nation. The story of the Bedford Boys is this. Among the hundreds of thousands massed off the shores of Normandy on the morning of 6 June 1944 were 44 soldiers, sailors, and airmen from the town and county of Bedford, Virginia. Thirty-seven of these young men belonged to Company A of the 116th Infantry Regiment, 29th Division. For almost all of them, This would be their baptism of fire. Of the 37 assigned to Company A, 31 loaded into landing craft and headed for Omaha Beach in the first wave. The remainder belonged to supply details and would arrive later. En route, a landing craft struck an obstacle and sank, stranding dozens far from shore, including five of Bedford's own. The remaining 26 successfully reached Omaha Beach, where 16 were killed and four wounded within a matter of minutes. Three others were unaccounted for and later presumed killed in action. Another Bedford soldier was killed in action elsewhere on Omaha Beach with Company F, bringing Bedford's D-Day fatalities to a total of 20. In comparison with its wartime population, Bedford suffered the nation's highest known per capita D-Day loss, a somber distinction for the rural Virginia community. Their D-Day Memorial, to honor those lost in June of 1944 on those beaches, began this way. In retirement, D-Day veteran Bob Slaughter of Roanoke, Virginia, started attending reunions with fellow veterans and speaking to community groups about the war. Concerned, there was little public awareness of what took place on June 6, 1944, and worried that his brothers-in-arms who gave their lives that day would be forgotten. Slaughter and some like-minded veterans and supporters formed a committee in 1989 that would later become the National D-Day Memorial Foundation, with the goal of creating a lasting monument to D-Day somewhere in the United States. In 1996, Congress warranted the establishment of such a monument in Bedford, Virginia, and President Bill Clinton, who just two years prior walked Omaha Beach with Slaughter, signed legislation officially designating the National D-Day Memorial the nation's monument, to D-Day. Though declared a national monument, the project would receive no federal funding. Peanuts cartoonist and World War II veteran Charles Schultz, whose depictions of America's favorite beagle Snoopy and scenes from the Normandy invasion appeared in newspapers across the country, signed on as national campaign chair. Saving Private Ryan director Steven Spielberg was among the memorial's early donors. Their combined star power helped take fundraising efforts nationwide. Hundreds, including D-Day and World War II veterans, gathered for a groundbreaking ceremony on Veterans Day, 1997. The memorial would be built upon consecrated earth, a mixture of sand from the coast of Normandy and Bedford soil. The foundation unveiled the memorial's first sculpture on Memorial Day, 1999. The Overlord Arch, the signature monument, was under construction by spring of 2000 in time for the dedication of the memorial's first phase that Memorial Day. On June 6, 2001, Bob Slaughter stood beside a second American president as George W. Bush dedicated the National D-Day Memorial on the invasion's 57th anniversary. Since its dedication, the National D-Day Memorial has welcomed tens of thousands of visitors each year. On June 6, 2019, The memorial marked the 75th anniversary of D-Day with more than 10,000 in attendance, including more than 100 World War II veterans who witnessed a stunning aerial tribute and keynote address by Vice President Mike Pence. The memorial commemorated its 20th anniversary in 2021 with a renewed resolve to teach the lessons and legacy of D-Day for generations to come. A very fitting third treasure in Bedford County. The town of Bedford offered a sizable tract of land for the memorial. The Bedford site, a windswept hill, offered breathtaking, unobstructed views of the surrounding mountains and the town below, the very places those who served longed to see again, though many would not. Sitting on more than 50 acres just above the town's grade school, this would be a place to educate the generations. Officially named the memorial's home in 1994, Bedford has come to represent all home-front communities that loved and lost during the war. You have raised a fitting memorial to D-Day, and you have put it in just the right place, not on a battlefield of war, but in a small Virginia town, a place like so many others that were home to the men and women who helped liberate a continent. Our presence here, 57 years, removed from that event, gives testimony to how much was gained and how much was lost. President George W. Bush, june sixth, two thousand one. Thanks for joining us at one thousand one Heroes Legends, Histories and Mysteries Podcast for the Three Treasures of Bedford County. I hope you enjoyed the story, and I do hope you take time with the family sometime to visit the D. D Memorial in Bedford, Virginia, if you haven't already. Thanks for listening. We always appreciate your reviews. So if you have a chance, please do drop us a note in the review column for 1001 Heroes. Until next Sunday at noon Eastern time, everyone. Stay safe, take care, and we'll be back soon.